0: Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This weekend marks the last Sunday of the church year, So we're wrapping up year A of the three-year lectionary series, and then we'll begin year B. Um, Year A had a focus on Matthew's gospel. Year B looks to Mark. Uh, It'll splice in a little bit of John throughout the year as You know, there's three years in the cycle and there's four gospel books. So Matthew, Mark, Luke get A, B, and C. John gets spread around. So you get a a bit more John next year to fill in the gaps. But um, this is the last Sunday. It is a day where we focus on the return of Jesus Christ, on what paradise will be like. Some churches will celebrate this weekend as Christ the King Sunday. And that language will show up in our text. We'll have Jesus called both a prince in the Old Testament reading and in the gospel reading, he is called a king. So those things are, are certainly here. Um, but last Sunday, again, the focus is on the end of time uh, and all the promises that the Lord has made and given to us as his church, as his people. So we're going to begin with the Old Testament reading from Ezekiel chapter 34, it's verses 11 through 16, and then verses 20 to 24. The epistle is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 28. And then the gospel reading is from Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. So our Old Testament reading from Ezekiel 34. For thus says the Lord Yahweh, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord Yahweh. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. really have to pause between those last two words, because injustice is one word in English, uh, and this is that two word, you know, the preposition, in, with, it's justice he's going to use to feed them. All right, so really with this text, several things to to open it up with here. First, who is Ezekiel? He's the prophet of God, sent to serve the people of Judah, Uh, 593 until 570 BC so he comes just before the exile happens just before Babylon crushes Jerusalem and he's with them for a while during their exile as well the book is very conveniently drawn up into three sections the first section the first 24 chapters is the judgment of God against Israel Uh, more specifically we would say Judah and the second book second part of the book is chapters 25 to 32 God's judgment against all the other nations of the earth. And this third part in which we're in is chapters 33 to 48, and it's about God restoring the people, his remnant, those who still have faith, who trust in him. A couple of important notes on this first paragraph is, so this is a prophecy. This is God speaking of something that will come to pass. The question is, is it twofold or not? Lutherans like to discuss twofold prophecy. That's the idea that a prophecy often has a meaning in the moment for who it's being spoken to. So as Ezekiel comes before the people of Judah to speak these words, is this a word that has a meaning in their lifetime? Or is this a word that has only a meaning when the Messiah comes? Some prophecies in the Old Testament are only one or the other, and many of them are both. And I would put before you here that if if you only read the first paragraph, it would sound a lot like uh, a present meaning. But the second paragraph, which we didn't read just yet, is going to make it sound like it's the future meaning of, of salvation that comes in Christ. So could it be both? Sure. So keep that in mind as we look at it what is the present meaning for Judah? What is the future meaning that we have in Christ for not only Judah, but the whole church? The other thing that you want to take take into consideration, and I should have said this one before we read the text, count the verbs. Maybe not all the verbs, more specifically the active verbs, and notice who the subject is in the sentences. I counted what's that 22 active verbs in the text 19 of them are God two of them are Israel or Judah and then one of them is a generic shepherd that's meant to paint the picture of what God is doing so yeah there's some importance here on who does the verbs and that's one of the ways again that, that we like to talk um, one of the things that we do when we study scripture who, who does the work who's doing the verbs it is God who brings about our salvation. It is God who cares for us. And these are, these are great things. These are beautiful things. The only active verbs for the people are in verse 14. They're both in the same verse next to each other. All right, as we look then at verse 11, and really this whole, whole section, there is a controlling metaphor, uh, a driving image in the text. It is this picture of sheep and shepherds. We are not literally sheep, but the text refers to us that way. Um, It was using a a picture, an image, that the modern day, not modern day, the, the present day hearer, the original hearer of the text would have understood. They didn't like shepherds, typically speaking. But they they knew what a shepherd was. They knew what a shepherd's work entailed. Many of them hired shepherds. Some of them would have been shepherds. So this is understood work. It's an understood picture. And sometimes we end up having to unpack these biblical images a little bit today. Because we just, in many of our cultures, and you know, we think of 21st century America, there aren't many people here raising sheep. Are there some? Yes. Do you know of any near you? And that's a question most Americans would probably say, no, they don't. So this becomes a a more difficult picture for us, but I think it's one that's fair enough, simple enough for us to to explain and to understand and to grasp anyway. Plus we have this image is used throughout scripture. It's one of the most common uh, pictures that we have. And it's picked up on in the New Testament. For example, in John's Gospel, where we learn from Jesus that he is our good shepherd. We're going to see that here in this text as well, although not, not the specific phrase good shepherd. But he is our shepherd. And we see that down in the second paragraph coming up. Now, as we were talking about the verbs, look here in verse 11 I, I myself that's called emphasis (laughs) right there. Uh, God could have gotten away there with simply saying, I will search for my sheep, but he didn't. He heightens it. I myself will search for my sheep, but even that wasn't enough. I, I myself. So it's a threefold thing, strong emphasis on who's doing this work. It is God who searches for us. It is God who rescues us. And that's a, a crucial truth uh, for, for the church, for the Christian. I skipped over that word behold. Behold is a good word to remember. It calls attention. So pay attention to this. This is important. This is the kind of thing that you have from that one little word. So God will search for us. He will seek us out. And then in the shepherd analogy there, when the sheep have gone astray, the shepherd goes after them. New Testament speaks that way as well. Jesus uses that kind of imagery in the gospel accounts. And so as a shepherd does that for his sheep, so God does that for us. He goes out for us. He rescues us. So Rescue. That means we've gotten ourselves into some kind of trouble or danger. A sheep that has wandered away from the sheepfold is in trouble. It won't know how to get back, which means it's pretty much doomed to some ill fate of another kind. I mean, it might be that they are attacked and killed by a predator, like a wolf or or whatever it might be. It could be that they simply cannot figure out how to feed themselves sheep are not very bright. Um, They really aren't. Don't get offended that God calls us sheep, though. By comparison to the Lord, we are not very bright. Uh, God knows all things. Uh, Whereas every time we learn something new, we are reminded just how much we don't actually know. And also, if we were left to ourselves and our own devices, what would we do? We would sin all the time. We would not love one another. We would not care for one another. That is our sinful nature. So the sheep is in danger from a predator. The sheep is in danger from the possibility of just not being able to care for itself. The sheep is in danger of wandering off into some other harm, like right off a cliff. Bringing about their own demise. Uh, so, So are we. We are in that same position. Apart from God, without God, that is a very vivid depiction of us. We could easily get taken by a predator, like, say, the devil. We could be led astray by other false sheep that's coming up in the second paragraph. We don't know how to care for ourselves. We really don't. It's only God who can truly provide for us so a lot of similarities there god will rescue us from where all places where they have been scattered um, i didn't count that as one of the verbs in the text although it is technically a verb it's a passive verb uh, not active that's why i mentioned active verbs this is something that's already occurred something that's already been done and it is interesting the phrasing here it actually makes it sound like it is the action not of the sheep but of another that they have been scattered, means someone scattered them. We're going to see the answer to that question in the second paragraph. Who scattered them? It's the fat sheep. We'll come back to that. On a day of clouds and thick darkness is a reference to the judgment day, when Christ returns for his second coming, and we have to stand before the Lord and his throne and give an account of ourselves. So this is uh, the picture, this cloud and thick darkness language is used by Joel and Zephaniah in their two books that they have wrote for us, written for us. In verse 13, we get a reminder of the wonderful Greek word for church. The Greek word for church is ekklesia, which is called out. Uh, Ek is the preposition for out, and kaleo is to call. So the ekklesia, the church, is the people of God having been called out, out of the world and gathered them together in the church. Now, this is a Hebrew text, but it fits together very nicely. And so I wanted to bring that out. God has brought his sheep out from the rest of the peoples in the world, where they were scattered, scattered throughout creation. And he has gathered them for himself and given them their own land. Now, if you're looking at this from the twofold perspective, you have the king of Persia, Cyrus in 538 BC, who will free the Judaites from their captivity in Babylon, and he'll send them home. He'll let them uh, go back to the land of Judah and Jerusalem to live and to work and to worship their God. Um, So that could be in mind here. The flip side of this is we think of today, this is a reference to paradise, that God will bring us into our own land, a land that he has prepared for us, a land that he will give to us. God will feed his people. This is important. This, This is another active verb for God. He is the one that provides for us. Feed us in the mountains, the ravines, the inhabited places of the country, good pasture on the mountains, all kinds of things. I mean, the picture here is that the whole land will belong to God. So even if we were to, well, it can't technically wander in the sense that we're talking about sin in that picture here. But if you just think about wandering around, You know, you can go just about anywhere, and in paradise, truly, we can go anywhere, and God will still provide for us. There is no more walking away from him. We're his. So that's kind of a neat picture here, uh, that, that all places that God's people inhabit, he will be there providing for them. So in verse 14, we get the two verbs of the people. They lie down in good grazing land. They feed on the mountains in rich pasture. So even in both of those where it's active on our part that we're eating or we're lying down, the food has been provided richly for us. The land has been provided graciously for us. So we're just enjoying what God has given. Even at that. God will be our shepherd. He will shepherd us. He will lead us. He will care for us. He will protect us. He will feed us, you know, the different things shepherds did. He will bring back the strayed, seek the lost. So those who have have left the sheepfold, he will bring us back. He will bind up the injured. So the healing hand of God mentioned here. He will strengthen the weak. A lot of the New Testament talks in that way. That God is for the weak, but he is against the proud. He's against the strong. It is, as Paul says, that it is in his weakness that he is strong, because in his weakness he looks not to himself, he looks to Christ. And so it is Christ who makes us strong, not by something of ourselves, but by himself, by giving us himself. The fat and the strong it will destroy, so we get into the idea of justice, judgment uh, for the sins that they have idolized in their lives. All right, second paragraph, verses 20 to 24. Therefore thus says the Lord Yahweh to them, behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them he shall feed them and be their shepherd and i yahweh will be their god and my servant david shall be prince among them i am yahweh i have spoken so we do skip over a few verses with this weekend's text and we jump straight instead to to the judgment so we have verse 16 mentioning that god is going to judge between the fat and the sheep uh, sorry he was going to judge the fat and the strong So verse 20 picks up on that phrase and shows us a little bit more about that judgment. We have the same emphasis from verse 11 that we started with, I, I myself. So as God was going to do all these active verbs in the first paragraph, all 19 of those things to care for us, now he's going to do all these active things in judging the fat sheep for for their sins. And you have much more. I didn't actually do the count. Let's see here. Active verbs for God. I myself will judge. I will rescue in verse 22. I will judge again. I will set up over them one shepherd. I will be their God. I have spoken. So, what's that six? Whereas we get more active verbs on behalf of the, the fat sheep here. You push, you thrust. You have scattered. So in that short sentence already, the the judgment of their sin, we get more active verbs on behalf of the people than we did in the whole of the paragraph before it. So when it comes to our actions, when it's up to our works, this text does not bode well. If we are relying on the things that we do, we're in trouble. Our bad outweighs our good. In fact, if you look at the whole of Scripture, the only things that we can do good are the things that God does through us. Isaiah will say all of our our deeds are like filthy rags. It is only because of Christ that anything we do could even be considered good before the Lord. So God is going to judge these fat sheep for their poor behavior, their their awful behavior and they're using their strength they're using their physicality to harm the other sheep so they're bumping they're shoving they're they're using their horns to jab and headbutt whatever it may be that brings that brings headbutting lam- rams into my mind as you can picture the rams locking horns and in, in battle uh, but these are doing it to those who don't have that they're they're fighting against the weak and They're harming them. They're scattering them. They're chasing them off. They're they're causing them to leave The the safety that is provided by the Lord um, we could talk there about then false teachers as who these fat sheep are I mean notice it's still sheep, right? In the gospel reading, we'll have sheep and goats, but here it's sheep and sheep. It's a fat sheep and a lean sheep. So we have those within the church who are abusing the things of the church, and they are harming the sheep. They're pushing them around. They're pushing them out. They are misleading them from God. And so from these, God will rescue. God will deliver his sheep. And he will judge these false ones. He will judge these fat ones. Verse 23 gives us a fulfilled prophecy. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 7 and Jeremiah 33 verse 17 talk about how David, one of David's descendants is going to sit on the throne of Israel forever. And that is Jesus, the good shepherd. So God is going to set up this one shepherd, the servant David, who will do this, this good work for him. He will feed them. He will feed us, the sheep. With what does he feed us? Uh, Again, John, who talks about Jesus as our good shepherd, also picks up on this theme. In John 4, as he talks to the Samaritan woman at the well, he talks about living water that he gives to us where we would never thirst again. As Christians, we can easily talk about baptism with that, how it is a life-giving water. uh, We will live with God forever because of the faith that he has given and bestowed to us. And then in John chapter 6, we have the conversation around Jesus telling the crowd that they, they have to eat his body. And the crowd can't accept that teaching. They all leave him in mass. But we would talk there about the Lord's Supper. Christ giving us his body, his blood to eat. So we can make reference to both of the sacraments in the text right here. As Christ feeds his church, as he cares for us. As he gives us even himself. He will feed us. He will be our shepherd. He will protect us. He will care for us. He will provide for us. Then verse 24, God is our God. Yahweh is our God. It's one of the crucial points of scripture. We have rebelled against him, but he seeks to bring us back. He seeks to restore what we once were, his. And then the shepherd David, or Jesus, uh, will be prince among the sheep. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 refers to the Messiah Jesus as being the prince of peace. Uh, princes are royal. Princes are the heir to the throne of the king. So this this Old Testament reading then, kind of picturing God the Father as the king sitting on the throne, and his reign, his rule over creation, then will belong to Jesus. We're going to see that actually in the epistle text as God the Father puts all things in subjection under Jesus, his Son. Our epistle text is from Paul's letter, his first letter to the church in Corinth. Actually, it might be his second letter. I've heard it said pretty frequently in, in theological circles that what we have is probably actually instead of first and second, more like second and fourth Corinthians. Paul had a habit of writing to these churches, and there's some details throughout the letters that give you hints that, for example, in 1 Corinthians, he's written with them before. But these are the two that we have, and this is the first chronologically of the two we have, so we call it 1 Corinthians. And it is chapter 15 indeed. Uh, It is the resurrection chapter, as it is so often referred to by the Christian church today, because this is really like the most profound chapter in all of Scripture to talk about Christ being raised from the dead. And that's a wonderful thing that we want to focus on uh, as often as we can, and especially, again, with this being the end of the church here, the last Sunday of the year, that focus is very much before us. In the section just before the text, I'll give you a little context here. Paul addressed the idea of what it would be like if Christ was not risen from the dead. And ultimately that came to the conclusion of saying that our faith would be in vain, we would still be stuck in our sins, and we would be pitiable above all people. Because we've given our life for this, right? The teaching of Jesus is that we would lose our life in order to save it. The Christian is not called to live comfortably in this world. We are called to give up the worldly comforts around us in order to care for others and to serve others and to point them to Christ. And so, you know, you think of Paul's life. As he spends, he gives up his rise to fame and power and and even limited wealth within the Jewish community. Um, As he was rising up the ranks of the Pharisees quickly, he gives all that up to follow Christ. After the road to Damascus event that occurred, we can read, I think that's Acts chapter 9, somewhere around there. If it's not 9, it's maybe 8 or 10, something like that. Paul gives it all up and then he ends up spending his future years, many of them in prison. He spent six years likely uh, in in prison in and out. He was shipwrecked several times, lots of, lots of different times. He was, he was harmed, um, beaten for, for the things he was preaching and teaching. We are pitiable. We are the most pitied of all. If Christ is not raised. That's the, the aim of the, the previous section. Paul could have had worldly gains and he gave it all up. He calls it in one place, skubula. That um, was in his Romans letter. He calls it that, and that's basically the Greek word for poop. Um, so he treats it all as as skubula. He treats everything he had before as being worth nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and him crucified. And so if that's the goal uh, not the goal that's the, the conversation that leads into our opening opening of this reading for our weekend this is just one paragraph so we're gonna read the whole text and then unpack it but in fact christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for as by a man came death by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead for as in Christ for as in Adam For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So again, coming off of saying, what would it be like if Christ wasn't raised? Paul then specifically says it. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. It's not a false lie that we've made up. It's not a myth that you've just heard from somebody else. This is a truth. It is a reality. It actually happened. This is one of the battles that we fight as Christians 2,000 years later, Our culture, especially this American culture we live in, likes to deny the historicity of Jesus, that he was an actual human being that lived in this creation. They deny it, which is really harmful to their own cause, in my mind, because there is enough evidence without a doubt that Jesus lived. No doubt about it, historically speaking. So to deny history, is what they have to do in order to claim Jesus never, never lived. But again, that's what we we're up against anyway. That's what we face. We face a culture that says Jesus never lived, let alone died. And if he never lived and died, of course, he couldn't be raised from the dead. So we have this fight among us, but we know he has been raised from the dead. It's a fact. This is what Paul tells the people around him. He will go on to tell them um, also that if they don't if they don't have his word for it, if, if that's not enough for them, there are 500 brothers who have seen the Christ, most of whom are still alive. In other words, go ask them. You have many, many, many witnesses to talk to. Many have seen the risen Christ. Go, speak with them. In fact, our historicity uh, on this text is so good, on the idea of the Easter morning resurrection of Jesus. Our, our weight of evidence in history is so strong, that most atheists are willing to admit that the scholarly ones, the ones who have done the, the, their homework on the texts of scripture and, and the evidence of history, are willing to admit that Jesus not only lived and died, but many of them will even admit to you that the tomb on Easter was empty. And that they they can understand that a risen Christ seems to be the most likely option, you know, compared to saying somebody stole his body, or he wasn't really dead, I was in some kind of a coma, all those kinds of other things that are offered up. They're willing to admit the tomb was empty. And that, again, there's a possibility that that's the best option to think that Jesus rose from the dead. However, They cannot bring themselves to believe that. And within our our Lutheran theology, we would agree with them there. They can't bring themselves to faith. That is a a thing that the Spirit must do. It is a a thing that has to be spoken to them. Faith comes by hearing. And so it is my prayer for those, those who are in that position, however many that may actually be, that the Christians who are around them, would speak the word of God, and that the Spirit would work in their hearts uh, to, to give them faith, to give them repentance, and to bring them into the kingdom, to be with us forever. That would be wonderful, worth rejoicing. Now, where are we in the text? Christ has, in fact, been raised. That's our faith. That's where our faith comes from. If Christ isn't raised, there's no point to any of this. But because Christ is raised, there's a point to everything. This is where our hope lies. This is why, as a Christian, we can endure anything the world throws at us. Because we know what's coming. We know that Christ is risen. And because he lives, we live. And we get to live forever. So I can endure whatever suffering the government may choose to throw at me. American culture, we've lived in a time of comfort, but many Christians don't. And it's possible we won't before too much longer. And that's okay, because Christ lives. We will live. He suffered for us. And when we suffer, it points us to his sufferings. It reminds us of who he is and what he's done for us. All right, we got to keep, we got to move before, beyond verse 20a. Um, We've spent all of our time there so far. So, Christ is the first fruits. First fruits implies next fruits, more fruits. So, that Jesus is first tells us that there would be others. And we indeed see that a couple of verses later uh, when Paul goes through the order. So, we'll get to that. There are Of those who have fallen asleep is a reference to death so Christ is the first of the dead to rise from the dead and he will bring others with him verse 21 simple truth as by a man came death so that's Adam in Genesis 3 so by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead by Jesus we live by Adam we die by Jesus we live verse 22 and Adam all die this is a reference to original sin uh, that adam and eve were created perfect they were in god they were of god they were you know they were holy and they chose to rebel against him when they did that all of creation was broken they fell from that perfection that god had made them in and because they fell from it every child born to them into that family tree and we're all part of adam and eve's family tree every person born into that family tree exists in that state of being separated from god and even when i said born we could say conceived every conceived child in the history of creation except for christ is conceived as a part a part of the brokenness we we begin in rebellion against the lord and it is he who has to call us out of that rebellion and back to himself so all die in adam also in all cry in christ all shall be made alive and unfortunately that's not all as in every single person ever but life only comes from christ so all who live will live by christ And indeed, he will actually raise all from the dead on the last day. Unfortunately, again, not all of those will believe. Not all of them will get to be in paradise together with their Lord. Each in his own order. So there's an order to this. God is a God of order. That's what he does. Christ, the first fruit. So Christ is first. That's already happened. Then at his coming. So when Christ returns, all those who belong to Christ will be brought to life with him. We get this elsewhere in scripture. For example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, which we had as our epistle reading two weeks ago, talks pretty specifically about this as well. Christ will return, and he will take us to be with himself. The dead will rise from the dead, and those who have yet to die will simply be gathered together. And then comes the end and Jesus will deliver the kingdom to God the Father. So he has he he has broken into creation to take creation back. I mean again we've mentioned the fall in Genesis 3. When when God created the world, he entrusted it to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve broke his law. They rebelled against God. They sinned against God. They took that creation that he entrusted to them and they broke it. They gave it to the devil. They entrusted it to Satan's care. With their sin. By allowing his deception to stand. Jesus, as our Savior, does not come to save us from the Roman Empire, as so many Jewish people thought at that time. No, he comes to save us from the reign of of the devil. He comes to save us from sin and from death and from Satan. And by doing so, he is reclaiming the creation for the creator. And he's returning it to God the Father, um, which is a wonderful thing. Another example of, of the forfeiture of creation is First Samuel chapter 8, as God, um, well, the people rebel against God. They, want, they demand a king. They no longer want God to be their king. They want a person to be their king. And so they cast God off. Uh, they cast off God as being the king of the kingdom. And so Jesus, again, restores all of this to the Father. Jesus destroys every rule, not just some, every rule, and every authority and power, and we do well to remember all authority in creation comes from God anyway. But any human institution, any any worldly power, and that includes also then the devil and his forces, Christ has overcome them all. They're all sinful. Even the best human government you can ever fathom is still sinful. It's still destructive. It's still part of the curse because we rejected God. Had we not rejected God, we wouldn't have a government. God would be our king and that would be it. So Jesus destroys every earthly rule and authority and power. Verse 25 might strike you as a little odd that Jesus must reign until God has put all enemies under his feet. Um, The reasoning is going to be verse 28, where the son is then subjected to him. So Jesus reigns as king in the current time. Even now, Jesus is reigning as king. He's restoring the kingdom to the Father. And when finally all enemies have been placed under his feet, the last enemy is death. Death is not fully defeated yet. Christ's second coming brings that about. At that point, Jesus returns everything to the Father. So we read in verse 27 that God has put all things in subjection under his feet. That's Matthew 28, 18 where Jesus says that he has all, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Indeed it has. And Jesus then reigns. Uh, the next, couple, these couple of verses are a little, I don't know, they're worded a little uh, strangely, I think probably in the ESV text. Simply put, God the Father puts everything under Jesus the Son. Jesus is in charge of everything except for God the Father himself so the father entrusts all of creation to jesus jesus then as he is is finishing this good work as he is finishing the reclamation of the kingdom for the father jesus will then be placed under the under the father as well he's never really left that position but paul's emphasizing it here subjected to him who put all things in subject to him so Jesus will be subject to God the Father, forevermore. It's important for us to see, and to recognize that even in the Trinity there is hierarchy. Right? American history, especially the last couple of generations, has really despised hierarchy, and you could say that too back in the 18th century when they rebelled against the British Empire. Anyway, um, British monarchy, whatever. You have the, the movements in the 50s, 60s, 70s that showed the, the rebellion against government, against man. Uh, I mean, that's all they, they called it, too, right? Uh, Got to bring down the man. Who that man was differed quite a bit, depending on who you talked to. Anyway, hierarchy is actually something of God it's in the very nature of god for there to be a hierarchy and the rest of scripture speaks this way as well i mean we look at creation and we see something like in ephesians 5 where we learn that the husband is the head of his wife even as christ is the head of his church it's not that hierarchy is bad it's our sinful rebellion against god that's bad and so husbands have have you know in many ways Not just physically, but in many ways, husbands have been terrible husbands. They've abused their brides. They have not loved their brides by serving them as Christ calls them to do. So it's not that the hierarchy is bad. It's that we're sinners and that we're bad and that we need to be rescued from this. We need to be delivered from sin and from death and from the devil. And we rejoice because we have. We have been. Christ has done it. The text ends that God may be all in all. That's a really poor choice of words for uh, those who are in romantic love with one another. They might call they might call their significant other their all in all. I mean, this is a reference to the idea that nothing else matters. I mean, apart from God, nothing else matters. If we if we are apart from God, it is suffering for forever. And God is is the only thing that, that counts. He's the only one that matters. And then we, as his children, we're part of a family together. He brings us, he gathers us to himself, and together we get to be with him. We get to serve him. God is all in all. Kind of the point of that phrase. That brings us lastly to our gospel reading, which is from Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46, we've spent the last couple of weeks in Matthew 25 together and looking at first the parable of the ten virgins, which is a parable of judgment, uh, looking at the idea that you would have these ten virgins, five of them prepared and waiting for the groom to come back, and five of them just kind of going about their business, not prepared for when the groom would arrive. That's a parable about keeping our eyes fixed on Christ, being alert at all times, always being ready that Christ may return even yet today. The second parable, and after doing this Bible study with you all, I ended up preaching probably differently on this text. Um, so we, we normally consider the second parable of the chapter to be a stewardship text. and I ended up breaking it down in my sermon last weekend as being a text of judgment, just as the first parable was. So, Jesus, as the so it's the parable of the talents, Jesus about to go on a journey, he's about to ascend into heaven, entrust his disciples, the servants in the text, with the gospel, with the mission of sharing the good news, making disciples of all nations, being his witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So, Matthew 28. 19 and 20 Acts chapter 1 verse 8 um, and so the the parable then ends up being a judgment parable as well. you know as you look at the third the, the third and worthless servant, what made him worthless wasn't that he was a bad steward. It wasn't that he squandered the money or did something awful with the money. It was that he didn't he didn't go on the mission. he didn't do what the, uh, the well Jesus. He didn't do what the master what jesus gave him to do so the parable really invites us to consider whether or not we actually are part of the mission of god are we doing the work are we sharing the gospel or as jesus says elsewhere when the son of man returns will he find faith on the earth that's the challenge of that text and now as we come to this next section verse 31 to 46 we see that challenge continue more judgment as jesus is laying it on heavy this is a law text there's gospel as well we're going to do it's two paragraphs in the esv so we'll split this up as jesus continues to teach on the last day when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him then he will sit on his glorious throne I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, As you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So there's a clear connection between our Old Testament text and our gospel reading. uh, The idea of the separation of sheep from sheep or sheep from goats here with this text certainly brings these things together. Those are references to Judgment Day that we see in the text. So verse 31 begins by referencing Christ's second coming, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. And he doesn't come alone at the second coming either. Matthew 25 specifies he's bringing his angel army with him, all the angels. I have no idea how many that will be. But elsewhere in Scripture, I think it was back in Matthew 13, when Jesus is telling the parables and gives the explanation for the parable Um Parable of the sower. Hmm. Should have looked that one up. But Jesus is explaining his parable, and he goes on on to say that the reapers, the ones who harvest, are going to be the angels. And so this is actually this is the parable, the weeds. This is the one in Matthew 13 where you had the master planting. His good seed for his crop, and then the enemy comes in overnight and sows bad seed, and Jesus unpacks that to explain. Okay, who is who? Who is the, what's the good seed? What's the bad seed? Uh, good seed of the disciples of Christ. The bad seed being the the unfaithful. Uh, the enemy is the devil. The master is God. Um, the disciple the servants of the master. Offer to to take up the 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 weeds, the darnel at that given time and the master says no let it let them grow together and at the time of the harvest when the reapers go out they will gather they will take the the weeds the, the darnell and they will destroy those and then they will gather the the harvest into the barn and so the angels of the reapers and the barn is paradise i don't jesus doesn't actually say that last one but it's easy easy for us to fill that one in at this point in understanding the parable so that's helpful certainly connects here as jesus brings his angel army with him they've got a lot of work to do they're servants of god they do what he gives them to do and at that point jesus sits on his glorious throne and he does so for judgment we see in verse 32 that all nations so all people will be gathered before jesus we all must give an account of ourselves before the king and when we do judgment occurs there is a separation the sheep and the goats those on his right who are faithful those on his left who aren't now with the mentioning of right and left I'm wondering if that has an impact on the the Lutheran teaching of the two realms Uh, most people refer to it as the two kingdoms on God's right hand his right-hand realm is the idea that he works through the gospel he works salvation on the right hand on his left hand he works through the law he works through for example the government and the order of structure of civilization um, to help keep creation in check i guess you'd say to stop creation from spiraling into complete and total chaos god keeps order with his left hand but he saves with his right hand wonder how well that fits here uh, that it is the law that judges and so his law and his order on the left hand has has brought about judgment on those who did not believe but his right hand the sheep on the right they're saved it's interesting to at least consider and it gives us a chance to talk about the two realms so that's never bad to do either now and let's see that brings us to verse 34 the king says to those on his right, so he says to the sheep, he invites them to come. We saw this in the previous, the parable of the talents, where the master said to the faithful servants who had, who had made more talents, uh, they had participated in the mission, they had given the gospel that was entrusted to them, they'd actually shared with others. The Lord looks at them and says, Well done, good and faithful servant enter into the joy of your master the idea of invitation of coming into the master's house and we have it here as well in this next statement although this one really isn't a parable anymore doesn't fit the kind of parable definition um, even though he stays with an analogy still using sheep and goats just like we saw in the ezekiel text so they are invited in to the kingdom which has been prepared. So this is paradise. Well, I don't know that we want to say the kingdom in this particular spot would be a reference to paradise. Although well, certainly they're connected. But this is the kingdom. This is the reign of God. Uh, is the language that's used in Matthew's gospel. This is God's reign over his creation. So he's inviting them into his reign to be a part of that. As we, are, we think of ourselves as being co-heirs of Christ as we read elsewhere in the New Testament. So they this kingdom of God, his reign over creation, has been prepared from before the foundation of the world. And that's an impressive statement. What all God knew from the beginning. And he's, he's um, omnipresent everywhere. He's omnipotent, omnipotent, all-powerful. And he's omniscient. Uh, science refers to knowledge. So he's all-knowledgeable, all-knowing even before god created the world he already knew all things thousands of years ago he knew you already he already knew how many hairs would be on your head at this very moment he had them numbered he knew that we would rebel against him he knew that he would have to send his son jesus to save us and he knew he knew that we would inherit the kingdom it's really neat to think about. It's challenging to think about as well. Lots of people, when they think about that, end up asking, well, why? if God knew this, why did he go ahead and do it anyway? And quite honestly, I think that's a question we cannot answer. The scriptures never tell us why God created creation. They do tell us why he created man. Adam and Eve were created to care for creation. But we don't know why he created creation. So we got to be a little cautious there. Uh, educated guesses are often made in that conversation, but we, we need to acknowledge them as that, that they are guesses and just be okay to leave it at that. So that's where I'm going to leave you today. You can put it on your list of questions to ask God when you get there. Um, my list is long. I, I guess I don't need to write it down. I was going to say I should write it down somewhere, but (laughs) there's no point. Uh, God knows my every thought. Uh, and so God can clue me in if he wants to. All right, verse 35 and 36, God is going to, Jesus is going to break down what it looks like that these ones, these what made these sheep instead of goats. What did they, what is the property, what is the characteristic of a sheep? And what we're going to see is a description about loving your neighbor, being generous, being hospitable. Those are major factors here, and we know from what Jesus teaches elsewhere, that loving your neighbor is simply why we're here. It's our purpose. It's what we do. So they fed the hungry. They gave water or drink to the thirsty. They welcomed strangers. They clothed those who were naked. They visited the sick. They visited those in prison. helping others, caring for others. And Jesus is going to go on to say, because they're going to ask him, Lord, when did we see any of this? When did this happen? The king, right? That's an important word. The king will answer. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. We are called to love our neighbor and by loving our neighbor, we are serving God your neighbor is also God's creation. God loves them God cares for them God desires to save them. God has given you this good work to do. We are called to do it. One way this text invites us to consider the question of service to our neighbor is to think if if your neighbor was Jesus so take whoever it is that you're looking at or thinking about. If your neighbor is Jesus, how would you treat them? When you see the homeless person on the street, look at them as though they were Jesus. What would you do for them? That's a challenge. That's a real challenge to us and to our normal ways of thinking. So Jesus is inviting us here. Now, He's encouraging us here. He's, he's, he's lawling us here. I mean, this is law. Right? He's giving us law. He's giving us things to do. Love your neighbor by being generous, by being hospitable. Those are important things. The, there was a research study done by the Barna Group in 2017 uh, that looked at the idea of, you know, okay, so we've got children who, when they grow up, remain in the church. Retention is a big church problem. Everybody knows it, it's all across the board in every denomination of Christianity. We have trouble retaining people as they grow up. So the ones that stayed, why did they stay? What do they have in common? And they found, they were surprised by this finding, hospitality was one of the biggest indicators of a child staying in the faith as an adult. Regularly inviting people into your home. Involving them in the life of your family. Playing games together? Sure. Eating meals together? Sure. Studying God's word together, you know, doing devotions, praying together? Sure. All those things. Invite others into the life of your family. Hospitality is a big part of the people of God. It has been for for generations, long before us. Uh, so that's an encouragement to you. Uh, that's an encouragement that we see in this text, certainly. The second paragraph is just much the same language, flipping it around, though. Verse 41 to 46. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So these are the goats on the left. They are being cast out. They are being told to depart from God. Um they're being sent to hell now it's important to note there in verse 41 we learn that hell the eternal fire was not prepared for the devil. was not prepared for man it was prepared for the devil and his angels that's who god made it for unfortunately um, we choose oftentimes to to jump in at ourselves by rebelling against god and here as jesus explains by choosing not to love our neighbor this is the whole second table of the law first three commandments are about loving god love your neighbor love love the lord your god you shall not have any other gods before me not misuse the name of the lord and we should remember the sabbath day one through three those are all about loving god four through ten starting with honor your father and your mother those are all about loving your neighbor do them that's the encouragement of the text. do them And do them for the least of these. In the Old Testament, that was a reference to widows and orphans and sojourners. A sojourner was somebody who was not from your land. Uh, They were wanderers. They were passing through. We are called to care for all of those around us. Love your neighbor. And the goats did not love their neighbor. And so the same patterns of language are here. The same, same tasks that got done before are here, left undone. Um, so very same, similar. The one difference is um, they sum up all the, all their non-works. They said, when did we not minister to you? Ministry is, uh, the, the English word ministry is the Greek word that is also translated as serve. To minister to or to serve someone are, are essentially Greek the same words, so we can treat them as synonyms then in English. When did we not serve you? When did we not care for you? When did we not do these things? Whatever you did not do for the least of these, you didn't do for Jesus. That's a biting word of law, without a doubt. It cuts, it cuts hard, uh, and the Christian then is the person who seeks to love their neighbor, and even though we sin, how we repent of those sins. We ask the Lord to forgive us of those sins. And we constantly try to humble ourselves. We pray that the Lord would humble us, that one day he will exalt us as he welcomes us into his kingdom. The chapter ends, the verse ends, this passage with verse 46, that some go to eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And our righteousness is from Christ. It's not even ours it's his he gives it to us it's not my perfection it's his perfection he fills us with his goodness he fills us with his rightness righteousness he makes himself ours the bible the new testament specifically talks this way several times that there is no life apart from christ so all the dead are raised The faithful are raised to life that never ends. Those who weren't faithful are raised to punishment that never ends. And so it's interesting to note the distinction of those words. And we're thankful that the promise of life is there for us, that Christ has blessed us in such a way as inviting us to be a part of his kingdom and his family. And it is our prayer as the church that our neighbors would come to know him as well and that they too would be raised then to eternal life.